BridgeBank helps breakthrough ideas actually break through and remains dedicated to providing financial solutions to those committed to leveraging innovation to make the world a better place. BridgeBank, a division of Western Alliance Bank. BridgeBank. Be bold. Venture wisely. Hey there, this is Brittany Luce from NPR's It's Been a Minute. KQED's podcasts like The Bay, Bay Curious, Mind Shift, Right Nowish, and more all tell the stories of the Bay and beyond with reliable, human-centered journalism. They aim to inspire, make you think, entertain, and expand your understanding of the place you call home. Here's how you can support podcasting at KQED. Showing your support is easy, and you can join Brittany in supporting KQED Podcast too at donate.kqed.org slash podcast. That's donate.kqed.org slash podcast. From KQED. From KQED Public Radio in San Francisco, I'm Mina Kim. Coming up on Forum, the surge in coronavirus cases is jolting many industries, and Hollywood is no exception. The blockbuster Jurassic World Dominion had to halt production after a few crew members tested positive for the coronavirus. Movie theaters nationwide have had a hard time selling seats as they grapple with shutdowns, capacity restrictions, or people's fear of indoor transmission. But somehow, the shows do go on. We find out what films are still getting made and how, and when you might actually get to see some of them. Join us. This is Forum. I'm Mina Kim. Movies and TV shows are still getting made during the pandemic, but it has not been easy, whether it's the cost of all the safety measures to make sure a positive coronavirus test doesn't derail a carefully planned project, or constantly monitoring the rise in virus cases to gauge when to try for a theatrical release, if at all. But Hollywood is adapting, and so are consumers, or at least we're trying to. To learn more, we're joined by Steven Zychik, entertainment business writer for The Washington Post. Thanks so much for joining us, Steven Zychik. Thank you for having me. Also with us is Rebecca Rubin, film and media reporter covering the box office, streaming services, and Hollywood studios for Variety. Thanks for joining us, Rebecca Rubin. Thank you for having me. I'll start with you, Rebecca. I mean, given how many people work closely together, how much time it takes to make a film or a show, I mean, it's a lot to wrap your mind around how they're actually making films and, and shows during a raging pandemic. Can you just give us a sense of what sets are like these days, what the environment is like? Um, and sets during coronavirus are definitely still a trial and error process. I think they are trying to see which safety protocols um, are necessary. And so uh, what's been interesting to me is studios are kind of figuring this out on their own. There aren't necessarily across the board procedures right now on sets. They're all enforcing masks. They're all abiding by social distancing guidelines and doing routine temperature checks. But from there, it's a little bit of a trial and error. And um, one movie that recently wrapped filming was Jurassic World Dominion. And that is a big budget franchise movie that's shooting in the UK. And so 
their set, they've taken really extreme precautions. They've been doing um, swab testing up to three times a week for the key cast and crew members. They've been isolating those key cast and crew members in a hotel and um, again, doing temperature checks every day and making sure everyone on set stays apart from each other. They actually hired someone to make sure that people are maintaining their distances. And so in some ways it's similar to a normal film set. And then in a lot of other ways, it's just very heightened safety precautions. And even so we've seen that this isn't a foolproof process and some sets like Jurassic World have had to close down because they've had a string of positive COVID tests. So they're all kind of figuring this out as they go along. Wow, I've also read that entities have had to think about like precise ventilation and things like that as well. And you just mentioned the new job of basically enforcing social distancing. Wow, that must not be a very pleasant job to have. I mean, when you talk about all of this and about the stops and starts if people have positive tests, I mean, it must be incredibly pricey. Yeah, these are very big expenses, even just the swab testing and um, what they're referring to as an isolation bubble when they do rent out these hotel hotels for the key casting crew members. And so I spoke to one executive producer on Jurassic World and what she has said to me is that these are enormously expensive measures, but for the most part, they're they're being funded by Universal, which is um, one of the biggest studios. And they've basically spared no expense to make sure that the set stays COVID free. They've been spending millions upon millions to implement all of these procedures. And so while that's great for such a high scale production, not every movie set has the luxury of kind of just a blank check. Right. And so that must mean smaller films have been having a really hard time with the costs and the insurance requirements as well. How are they holding up? Yeah, I think the consensus now is if you don't have coronavirus insurance, it's really difficult to be filming right now. And so there are some smaller productions that have been making it worse. I'm making it work, sorry, but it is a definitely a very pricey endeavor and they're having to factor in all of these additional costs into the budget to make sure that the set is COVID compliant. And Stephen Zajic, I mean, meantime, the movies that have already been made uh, have been struggling with when and how to release them. I mean, can you talk about how the pandemic has upended the release side of this whole process? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, this has been uh, this is this has played havoc with with sort of all aspects of the Hollywood uh, pipeline, and that includes production, as as you guys were just talking about. I mean, uh, you know, these these movies are getting delayed; they're uh, running in cost issues. The good news, such as it is, it's a very uh, dark bit of good news, is that there's really no rush to put these movies uh, to finish these films because there's nowhere for them to go, as you note. I mean. Uh, theaters are pretty much, uh, you know, some theaters in some parts of the country are open, but uh, their attendance is vastly diminished. And a lot of studios have just basically punted on 2020 and even the first part of 2021. Uh, so we're going to get a kind of backlog of major releases, hopefully later in 2021, uh, when the economy gets uh, back up, hopefully to something close to full steam, if, if we even get close to that. Uh, you know, right now, the biggest movie scheduled on the calendar uh, of any real note uh, is The Eternals, a Disney Marvel film scheduled for February, originally uh, slated for last February, has been pushed back like a lot of Disney films for a full year. 
And so right now, and, and who knows where we're going to be uh, in terms of the virus uh, in, in the middle of the winter. So, you know, I think, you know, the really, the really grim news is that uh, for movie theaters that are trying to pay rent, uh, pay landlords, pay lenders, uh, they really don't have any sources of revenue or any significant sources of revenue for the coming months. The slightly better news is that hopefully we see some light at the end of the tunnel in 2021. And for studios uh, who are, as again, we've been talking about, have no real uh, way to fast track some of these productions with, with all of the COVID hurdles, uh, the good news for them is that they have a little bit more time to get these movies uh, ready and out because uh, they're, they're not ready with their films yet, uh, with a lot of these newer films anyway. Yeah. Uh, Steven Zeitschick, could you talk about the movie Tenet, Christopher Nolan's film Tenet, and whether or not that scared away studios from doing theatrical releases or, or inspired them, you know, to, to sort of lead the way and do it, um, how all that played out? Yeah, it was a really fascinating uh, drama to to watch in real time. Rebecca and I were both covering it. And I think a lot of us who were sort of on the sidelines kind of looking in and s saying, uh, you know, Warner Brothers, which was releasing this Christopher Nolan film, uh, are you guys really serious about moving ahead? I mean, they kept moving it back. It was originally scheduled for July. They moved it back a couple of weeks and they moved it back further. And they finally, as you say, did put it out uh, both overseas and then shortly after in the U.S. right around Labor Day and uh, did, did all right uh, internationally with it, I think. Uh, took in about $300 million, obviously not what they would have done had every country been, uh, you know, at full capacity, but but not bad for, for a major international release. Uh, did only about a fifth or a sixth of that here in the U.S. I think for exactly the reason, uh, the reasons we've been talking about, you know, a lot of people either didn't want to go to theaters, a lot of states were still in lockdowns. And so, um, you know, I think other studios, uh, you've astutely noted, other studios kind of looked at that and said, you know what, we are not going to even attempt this uh, we're going to postpone our films and pretty much everyone got out of the way for the fall. I mean, we're talking about movies like James Bond. Uh, we're talking about movies like Soul and other Disney a film, which is now moving uh, to uh, to Disney Plus. They're on demand, their streaming service, rather. Uh, the only movie really still on the calendar, the only studio that has not fully learned its lesson or learned from Tenet's mistakes is, uh, ironically, Warner Brothers, which put out Tenet. Uh, they still got Wonder Woman on the calendar for right. Uh, most people don't think that's really going to happen, that they're just kind of waiting uh, waiting uh, for, for the inevitable here and are going to eventually move it because uh, they know better than anyone uh, how difficult this is and what a, a money-losing proposition it is to put a movie in theaters right now. But but absolutely, everybody has learned from the mistakes they think of. So you are really doubtful that we will see Wonder Woman 1984 on Christmas Day? <laughs> uh, not in theaters. Uh, if they decided to theaters, do something else, right. they have more power to them, but not in theaters. And, and really quickly, talk about that something else with it. What are uh, studios trying to do in terms of figuring out how to handle streaming services or, you know, premium video on demand? Like what what are the things that they are gauging and learning as they go along? Yeah, it's a really interesting question. You know, I think when this began that there was sort of a thought that uh, maybe streaming services would really uh, will first reap the rewards, which they have. I think if you look at Netflix's subscription numbers, to take one example, they, they went up about 15 uh, million uh, subscribers early on in the pandemic. And then even as we got further into lockdowns in the spring and summer, uh, they gained 10 million new subscribers. So clearly streaming has been uh, a beneficiary, uh, if, if you can call call it that, uh, of, of all this. Disney Plus uh, just announced last week they're uh, well over uh, 70 million subscribers now worldwide. So clearly there's been a, a real boon uh, to those who have uh, content to offer online and a platform on which to offer it. The, the, the sort of unspoken part of all of that is the economics. You know, streaming services 
and let's take Disney Plus, for example, uh, they're not profitable right now and they won't be profitable. Most of them aren't and they won't be profitable for years. I think Disney has said that we're looking at 2023 or 2024 in order to be profitable. So, you know, while it's really nice for, uh, you know, uh, for those of us who are stuck at home uh, to have all these services and have this kind of uh, glut of content available to us, that doesn't necessarily mean it's economically profitable. And that goes, I think, to, to the question we were just talking about, which is, do these studios move these movies onto uh, digital platforms or whether they're their own streaming services or digital on-demand platforms? And, and I think the answer, while, while some of them have done it, but the answer from an economic standpoint is that this isn't a great idea. The, these services are not uh, built uh, economically to handle uh, the the business uh, models of these major films. I mean, we saw Disney put Mulan on Disney Plus for a $30 premium price at the end of the summer, a movie that they had hoped to bring in theaters. They finally threw in the towel on that. They haven't released numbers, but the widespread assumption is that uh, that did not recoup the hundreds of millions of dollars they spent to make the movie. So uh, right. these big budget right. films, you know, a smaller film may be a different story, but these big budget films are not really set up to make money on streaming services as much as we, we may as consumers want to see them there. We're talking about how the pandemic is impacting the movie industry with Steven Zeichik, entertainment business writer for The Washington Post, and Rebecca Rubin, a film and media reporter covering the box office, streaming services, and Hollywood studios for Variety. And I want to invite you, our listeners, to join the conversation. What are your questions about how the pandemic has impacted the movie industry? What favorite TV shows or anticipated movie releases have had to either stop production or been delayed that you are most disappointed about. Are you happy with streaming? Are you enjoying the benefits of this? Or do you miss the big screen? And maybe you might want to tell us what kinds of shows and films are you most drawn to these days? Are you drawn to the dark and dystopian as the mood of the times or something more escapist or calming? Let us know at 866-733-6786. Again, 866-733-6786. You can also get in touch on Twitter or Facebook at KQED Forum or email your questions to forum at kqed.org. I'm Nina Kim. More after the break. Stay with us. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. The America. He seems nice. I invited him to the dinner. It's good with fists for a diplomat. There are people in the future who need us. You got something. Not gonna like it. Time isn't the problem. Getting out alive is the problem. Welcome back to Forum. I'm Mina Kim. That was the trailer for Tenet starring John David Washington that tried a theatrical release 
this year amid the pandemic. We're talking about how the pandemic is impacting the movie industry with Rebecca Rubin of Variety and Steven Zychik of The Washington Post. And you, our listeners, are with us. Again, 866-733-6786 for your questions or comments. Also, you can reach us Twitter or Facebook at KQED Forum or email us forum at kqed.org. Joining us now is Moises Esparza. Moises Esparza is a film curator for Media Arts Center San Diego. Thanks so much for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. I understand that your theater had to close in mid-March, uh, but can you tell me a little bit about it because you're still in business and trying other things? Yeah, so the Media Arts Center San Diego manages an art house theater called the Digital Gym Cinema in San Diego. 46 seats, we were forced to close because of the pandemic uh, back in April, but we're trying to stay relevant and to keep our programming afloat by offering our films via virtual platforms. And how successful has that been? The success has been somewhat uh, limited. I think uh, there are so many options in terms of films and TV shows available through these SVOD platforms like uh, Netflix or Amazon Prime that convincing our supporters to mm. purchase a virtual ticket link for a film has proven itself to be very, very challenging, at least from uh, our corner of the cinematic universe. Right. And have you gotten any relief? I mean, I understand that you're you're hoping to be able to, that the lease expired on your studio, but you're hoping to move into a new space. But in the meantime, have you have you gotten any relief? You know, relief has come through um, loans that we've applied to, um, small grants. Uh, we are looking to partner with a th existing theater chain that is willing to loan us out one of their screens to be able to produce uh, or to be able to host in-person screenings. Mm. But, you know, we San Diego just slid back into the purple tier, right. which is the most restrictive uh, in California. Um, for businesses. So, you know, those plants were, were, were halted. So we are back to uh, the virtual uh, sphere. And we're just hoping to maintain our brand and our programming alive via these virtual platforms. I know that because you had to shut sort of the physical side of the theater, that there had to be layoffs of people who, who work it, right? I mean, we think about everything from concessions and ushers and marketing folks. Do you think the theater will survive? Are you optimistic, Moises Esparza? I am optimistic, but what you mentioned is the reality of my theater and many other theaters around the country. Uh, there is so much uh, at stake in terms of uh, the longevity of our business or the, vi the, the viability, we laid off half of our staff and it's just uh, heartbreaking. Um, so I do not want to ignore that reality that a lot of theaters, specifically independent theaters are facing, but I am optimistic. You mentioned that we do, we are getting a new space in the future. We're kind of pushing all of our positive energy to uh, greener pastures in a way next year. And hopefully, um, you know, the pandemic is controlled and we're able to reopen our doors um, under better circumstances. Well, Moises Esparza, we hope so too. Thanks so much for sharing your experience. Thank you so much.
Moises Esparza, film curator for Media Arts Center San Diego. We're also talking with Stephen Zeichik of the Washington Post, Rebecca Rubin of Variety, and you are listeners. And let me go to caller Christina in Ventura. Hi, Christina. Hi, Christina. Are you there? Hi, I'm here. Yes. Thank you for having me. Sure. Go right ahead. So I just wanted to make a comment um, that my boyfriend is actually an independent filmmaker, and we've been really fortunate here at Ventura because we have free testing. Um, So he makes sure that everyone knows they have to get tested before the filming date. And if they don't, we can't film, so it delays the filming process. Um, But it's something that is unusual, but something that we, it's how we've gotten around being able to film. Well, I'm glad, Christina, that that it's actually something that's been helpful to you. Thanks so much for sharing that. And Rebecca Rubin, I mean, it just reminds me also talking with Moises of just sort of the innovation that the industry is having to go through to some extent and also trying to be really resourceful. I don't know if it reminds you of any other things that on the production side has been happening. I agree. I think basically every aspect of the industry has had to get innovative and be resourceful in um, many different ways Um, on the pandemic. I mean, on the production front, I would say, like I mentioned, these COVID compliant officers that they've had to hire. And these are just some extra bodies on set to make sure everyone is following the protocols. Um, And then if you're looking at the movie theater side of things, they've also had to get very innovative because like we've said, they've had essentially no revenue coming in for months Um, when theaters have been able to reopen attendance has been pretty low. And so one um, aspect I thought was interesting is a lot of these major chains now are doing private theater rentals. And so they're charging $99 and you can bring up to, I think 10 or 20 people to see a movie and you have the auditorium to yourself. And so the feedback they've gotten is, People still want to go to the movies, but it's a way to control the um, outside factors a little bit more. You can control who you're seeing it with and you feel a little more comfortable in that environment. And so they've already seen pretty significant success with that. Well, let me go to caller Mark in San Francisco. Hi, Mark. Hi. Um, so my, I have complete sympathies for the movie industry. This is a kind of a moment of levity, but we've been waiting 55 years for a proper Dune to be produced. <laughs> so I'm very sad that the spice will not flow this year. Um, it, it's just a tragedy for me. But again, not undercutting the, um, the sadness for the entire industry. Well, thanks, Mark, for sharing that. And actually, I mean, <laughs> Steven Zajic, how, I mean, have you seen that the pandemic has affected the kinds of movies and TV shows that people want to watch? Yeah, it's been it's been kind of interesting to watch. Uh, first of all, I, I share that, by the way, that uh, your your listeners uh, uh, <laughs> pain. I think we've all been waiting for uh, for a Dune uh, worthy of the source material. Uh, hopefully, uh, Denis Villeneuve, the director of the film, has given us that. Uh, we'll just have to wait a little later, a little longer, rather, for it. Uh, but Mina, to your point, I mean, it is really interesting to to kind of see what sort of content has emerged from all of this. A couple of kind of uh, you know, points perhaps of interest. Uh, there's a movie that Michael Bay, uh, the big Transformers director produced called Songbird that's gonna be coming out shortly, uh, which actually is set amid the pandemic, uh, kind of a, a near future dystopian version of what we've been going through, though uh, that might be a, a, a redundancy there. 
Uh, and of course, a lot of people have watched the trailer and said, why do I need to see a movie of what we've essentially been living through? And I think that kind of underscores the point that maybe people do want something a little bit more escapist. I think historically, uh, when you look at dark times this country has been through it, that's not necessarily been the case. We've wanted to watch uh, dark material. Sometimes that's reflected what we've gone through. Uh, but maybe right at this moment, there's a little bit more of a desire for escapism. Uh, we did a story uh, last week or two weeks ago about a, a sort of mini trend that's developed around what's called kind of calm programming. Uh, and this is programming that's uh, uber soothing, almost to the point of soporific. I mean, you know, this is, this is stuff that makes you uh, literally fall asleep. And Hollywood is OK with that. There's an HBO Max series right now called A World of Calm. Some listeners may be familiar with the app, Calm app, which was a series produced in conjunction with that of, you know, very soothing voiceovers from from well-known names and and kind of uh, beautiful imagery that's meant to just put you in a state of relaxation. And I think that that is emblematic of a, a kind of wave of programming that maybe, uh, you know, goes the other direction from some of these shows and movies uh, that really are trying to double down on the pandemic. They're kind of saying, you know, we don't need a, a TV episode of, uh, of the Connors or of a show like The Good Doctor that's going to look at what we're going through right now with the pandemic, we want something that's just going to make us forget all about it. And, and you know, that, that's out there on offer. Too. Uh, let me go to caller Debbie in Napa. Hi, Debbie. Join us. Hi. I just want to say that I love going to the movies and you can't get that same feeling by watching a small screen uh, or your tablet or your phone. And uh, certainly epic movies, uh, James Bond or Star mm. Wars or Dune, uh, but also um, Metropolitan Opera simulcasts, you have to see on a large screen. And there's no better escapism than going into a dark room for two hours with a popcorn and the drink of your choice and uh, getting away from your everyday life. Well, Debbie, thanks. I think this listener is with you. This listener tweets, I miss going to the movies so much. That was my weekend treat. We invested in a Sonos surround sound for our home, but there is nothing like watching an action movie on the big screen. I mean, Rebecca Rubin, that really is the hope, right? That as soon as there's a vaccine, as soon as movie theaters can open all over the place again, that there will be a quick rebound. So this is one of the biggest debates right now. There's one side um, that says exactly what these listeners are saying. There's going to be extreme pent-up demand to go to the movies. People are desperate to leave their houses when the pandemic is better, get off their couch. We've all been watching movies and TV shows from the comfort of our home for a very long time now. And so people are really craving this communal experience of going to the movies and saying that it can't be replicated in the home. But then there are people on the other side of the argument that say that movie going is dead. When there's a vaccine, people aren't going to want to return to the theaters. They've gotten used to watching movies on streaming services when they want. They don't have to wait for them. Um, and they kind of look to streaming services as the future, like HBO Max and Netflix and Disney+. And... Um, so those are the two extremes. Me personally, I think the reality is somewhere in the middle of that. I don't think that movie theaters are going to go away forever, but I certainly think it's going to change the kinds of movies that play in theaters. And I think we're still going to see your Bond movies, Marvel movies, anything from big popular franchises in theaters. But 
I think some of the movies that weren't as commercially successful and that tended to be movies from genres that were comedies or smaller, more intimate dramas, we might see those lean more heavily towards streaming services. Well, I mean, Jonathan tweets, I'm wondering why studios aren't trying online releases so people can view at home. I would pay 40 to $50 to see James Bond. Stephen Zychik, what do you think about that? Yeah, and look, I think if there are enough, uh, you know, consumers or audience members like that, they, they might think about it. You know, I think it's a bit of a myth, this idea that studios don't want to put it out because they're trying to, they have any allegiance to one platform or another. I don't think that's true. I think they like movie theaters. Some of their executives come from the movie theater world, but I don't think they have any kind of, uh, you know, dinosaur mentality, which is some of the sometimes the the charge you hear leveled. I think they're looking at at the simple economics and the math, and the math is right now not enough people are willing to pay forty or fifty dollars uh, to justify the cost. I mean, we're talking about these theatrical movies uh, that take in a billion or more than a billion dollars worldwide. Studios get to keep more than half of that. You know, that's a pretty big lift to ask consumers uh, to basically pay hundreds of millions of dollars in the aggregate uh, to watch a movie at home when they can watch, you know, many of their favorite streaming services for free. So, you know, believe me, if they thought that they could make that kind of money, uh, they would be moving these movies uh, uh, and, and, and releases uh, to, to uh, at-home platforms. But I just don't think they believe the audience is there yet. Well, Noel tweets, how about drive-in theaters? If they had most current films that I like, I would go. I mean, drive-ins have done better, right, uh, Steven Zychik? But sort of what is the cost-benefit for studios to release at a drive-in, for example? Yeah, I mean, drive-ins, we, we did a story on drive-ins very uh, kind of early-ish in all of this. And clearly, they were very optimistic because they, they, they said, you know, we've been, so, we've been doing social distancing before it was cool. Um, and so they, they've been in a great position in this regard. Um, you know, the problem, though, is that the studios, you know, the way these 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 big budget movies, as Rebecca was talking about, these Marvel films and these, uh, you know, these these Pixar movies, it, they're really meant for, you know, the largest audience possible. They need critical mass. We're talking 4000 theaters in this country uh, and upward of that number. And, and sadly, there are only a couple hundred drive and figure uh, uh, studios, le- uh, theaters rather left in 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 America right now. And so there's just not enough uh, of a of a kind of um, uh, just a, a base there for for studios to put out big movies. That said, you know, drive-ins have done. I've talked to a couple of drive-in owners just even in the last few weeks, uh, you know, who over the summer did very well. They did very well either with uh, some of the smaller films, the horror films that were out. Uh, there have been what, what are called kind of rep screenings, which is, you know, Indiana Jones or Back to the Future or Ghostbusters, these older movies that they've been able to put on. Or sometimes they've done, you know, live events or these hybrid concert simulcasts that have done well. So drive-ins have, have come out of this okay, uh, but any hope that they're going to have these big movies, uh, there's just not enough of them to make it worthwhile for the studios. Again, Stephen Zajic is entertainment business writer for The Washington Post, and Rebecca Rubin is a film and media reporter for Variety, covers the box office streaming services and Hollywood studios. Let me go to Sarah in Berkeley. Hi, Sarah. What do you want to say? Yes, hi. Um, thanks for taking my call. This point was uh, touched on earlier, but I just wanted to comment on depiction of the pandemic uh, on screen. I was watching the season premiere of This Is Us, one of my favorite shows. And in that episode, they do depict the pandemic and events of 2020 um, in the story. And I was surprised by my reaction. I realized that I am not at all ready to see this year reflected in my fictional television because TV right now, for me, needs to be an escape. Um, and a, a return to 
remembering what life once was. Yeah. I think it's going to be a couple of years before I'm ready to really reflect on everything that's happened this year by seeing it on screen. And I'm wondering if anybody else feels that way. Well, I think this next caller might agree with you. Let me go to Brandon in San Jose. Hi, Brandon. Hi, how you doing? Thanks for taking my call, too. Yeah, go ahead. I wanted to, I wanted to mention that there's this Showtime offering that's a six-episode uh, series called Moonbase 8. And the production value is really high, so I'm satisfied as far as that goes. And it also is a little more less serious than everything that's happening. So I really, yeah. really like Moonbase 8. So I'm glad to hear that. And less serious, it sounds like, is the way to go. Uh, Michael writes, I spent 40 years in Hollywood. My friends tell me that the COVID protocols are being observed with shows going on hiatus whenever a few positive tests show up. But wearing the face shields remaining six feet apart and the different sections on set have taken much of the fun out of working these days. Rebecca, what do you think? Have you heard that sentiment? Yeah, what I've heard basically is everything is very calculated these days. And so it takes away a little bit of the collaborative nature of filmmaking. And most of the time when you're on set, you're always talking to people and you're interacting with uh, the other actors, the other, uh, the director, et cetera. And so now all of that is limited and all of that is being um, measured in a way where you have to stand six feet apart from everyone on set. And so um, I do think that we are seeing these really calculated moves because they need to make sure that there isn't going to be an outbreak on set. Um, one thing that a producer has mentioned to me is if um, they're shooting a scene with a lot of extras, typically they'd be able to say, hey, we need 20 extra people for this scene tomorrow. But now, if anybody's on set, they need to have at least two negative coronavirus tests. So they need to do all of their planning at least a week or two in advance. Wow. And so they're making very cautious and, and careful decisions on every level. We'll hear more about those after the break. I'm Mina Kim. This is Forum. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. This world is not yet ready for all that you will do. Your time will come, Diana. And everything will be different. Citizens of the world! I'm here to change your life. Anything you dream of, you can have it. You'll break your sargos. Diana, look at you. It's like not one day has passed. 
That, of course, is the trailer to Wonder Woman 1984 for whenever that's released. And that's what we're talking about on Forum today. I'm Mina Kim. How the pandemic has impacted the movie industry and the release of films and the making of films. We're talking with Steven Zeitschik, entertainment business writer for The Washington Post, and Rebecca Rubin, who covers the box office, streaming services, and Hollywood studios for a variety. And joining me now is Corey Tong, a filmmaker, producer, writer, and photographer. Thanks so much for joining us, Corey Tong. Hi, good morning. Thank you. I understand that you are working on a film about San Francisco's Chinatown. Can you tell us a little bit about it? Yes, absolutely. I'd love to. This is a, a film. It's a part of it's an part of it's an episode part of a larger documentary series created and produced by James Q. Chan called You Are Here: Portraits of San Francisco Chinatown. And it's currently in production, directed by myself and my co-director Penelope Wong. We are focusing on the artist and couture designer, Victor Tung, who has a beautiful studio in San Francisco, Chinatown on Commercial, right there in the center of the district. Um, well, it sounds it sounds amazing. And, you know, just before we were uh, going into the break, we were having listeners asking questions about, you know, just how all the COVID safety protocols, besides I'm sure hitting your budget and affecting parts of filming, how it has affected the movie making experience. And I'm curious how it's affected it for you. Well, to start, this is a relatively small scale independent film that we're doing. So we're already working with limited resources and crew. However, we've had to scale this down to a very, very intimate level where the physics. So we just shot this past Monday, November 16, just two days ago. We we did uh, quite a bit of prep and possibly probably a lot more prep than we would have in uh, if we were shooting Verite style. This would be, let's say, one of maybe five or six filming days. But this was the first day that we shot in the studio. So we were inside in an interior space and we did quite a bit of prep in that we circulated questionnaires ahead of time. We did a lot of pre-listing, very, very specific uh, shoot lists, which means we're trying to designate shots ahead of time so that we expedite the process. So it, a lot of it is a, is a learning curve where in other films where we may say, oh, we have shooting over a month and we might go in to follow our subject for for eight hours a day. We obviously have some more restrictions. We there we right. work with a more confined environment. Do you feel like it's affected the creative time. process for you? Forgive me, sorry. Do you feel like it's affected the creative process at all in the moment? It has, and yet we've had to be like many of the other guests on the show, and even the questions. We've had to be very resourceful, very very creative. <laughs> We have to sometimes anticipate and maybe take three or four shots in the same, taking care of three or four potential shots in the same shot, if that makes sense, where we might have had the luxury of going back many, many times or shooting something again or taking extra time to linger on, let's say, the studio environment or all of the paintings or all of the beautiful clothing that Victor has created. So we have, we've really taken a number of 
shots, let's say, or hours and try to compress them into a shorter period of time because we don't also know, even if we have a production schedule, we may not, things may change and we may not have next week for example. Yeah, to, we may not have. Access. Yes. I just have one last question for you, because I understand you also distribute independent films and that you worked on releases, for example, of A Thousand Cuts, the documentary about journalist Maria Ressa, and that you also collaborated with Pier 70 and independent Bay Area theaters to create like a pop-up drive-in movie series. I mean, can you talk a little bit about what was gained or lost by that drive-in release format for you? Well, okay, for the drive-in, that was really a response and I think a very, very creative one for looking, since we don't, this was planned in starting maybe July. And by the time all of the preparation was put together, really it's creating a new venue from scratch, Mm. in quotes. So we had to really pivot. We didn't have a theater, but it was a response. So we worked with the Balboa and the Roxy theaters in San Francisco, and we, Pier 70 provided the space. They had a lot. So there was a lot of creative juggling, creative thinking. Okay, there's this beautiful bare industrial lot that is in the middle of a construction site and what can it be used for creatively and then the response was well public events but we can't have certain kinds of public events and so the idea of drive-ins we're really combining the idea of a theatrical venue combined with what people are looking for with theater film gathering but sort of gathering with distance yeah. in one's bubble of a car. Right. Well, well, Corey Tong, what you're saying is making me think about what kinds of innovations may be here to stay even after the pandemic. Corey Tong, filmmaker, producer, and writer, also represents independent films and distributors. Really appreciate having you on. Thank you so much, Mina. Really Thank appreciate you. all this show is very fascinating. So <laughs> Thank it. you. Um, well, let me go to caller Nathan in Oakland next. Hi, Nathan. Join us. What do you want to say? Hi there. Um, well, it's funny you mentioned uh, ways in which you know things are going to kind of stick around after the uh, pandemic is over. Um, I guess I was kind of pre-prepared. Um, I've I've had a projector in my home just for the longest time. Not even like a its own theater room, but really just you know I, I literally sit it on a stool and aim it at a wall, and um, you know connect my laptop to a Bluetooth speaker and. Boom, I kind of have my own personal theater, Um, you know, in a lot of ways. um, It's just a simple Epson one. It's like maybe a third of the cost of what, you know, a TV that size would even be or even larger. So, um, yeah. Yeah, so it sounds like it helps recreate the experience for you. Exactly, exactly. You know, if I get my own popcorn popping machine, then, you know, I've basically got it. <laughs> well, well, so. thanks for, for sharing that. And I'm sure a lot of streaming services are happy to hear that. And that's what we're asking you, our listeners, to weigh in on. I mean, are you happy with streaming? Do you miss the big screen? What favorite TV shows or anticipated movie releases had to stop production or been delayed that really disappointed you? What are your questions about how the pandemic has impacted the film and TV industries? Uh, let me go next to Laura in Oakland. Hi, Laura. Hi. Thanks for taking my call. Yeah, go right ahead. Well, someone that was commenting before about not wanting to see, um, you know, the COVID virus on TV shows, and I have exactly the opposite opinion of that. This COVID virus is going to be with us for a very long, so it's a very long time, and so is the recovery. And I think as much as media um, 
influences our our society that having that included in some of our shows and and just showing examples of how people are dealing with it or aren't dealing with it might be a good idea. Well, Laura, thanks. And I'm sure there are filmmakers who are happy to hear you say that as well. Uh, Steven Zajic of The Washington Post, you know, just listening to those last couple of comments, do you think that movies, especially low budget movies, are likely to go straight to streaming moving forward based on this experience? Yeah, I think there will have to be a bit of a recalibration here. I think independent films, which, you know, this is a shift, frankly, that's been going on for a number of years. Uh, we're seeing it in, in the ind independent film sector, the Sundance Film Festival, which is sort of the preeminent uh, gathering spot for independent films and filmmakers. There's been a, a real uh, kind of glut of deals uh, to streaming services. A lot of independent filmmakers I know have been thinking more about optimizing uh, both both creatively and financially uh, what they produce uh, for these smaller, uh, or I wouldn't even say smaller at this point, for the smaller screen, but for these other services as opposed to a more traditional theatrical release. So I do think there will be a bit of a reconfiguration uh, that that already, again, had been sort of happening and will will continue to happen now uh, because the, you know, theaters, some theaters won't be able to survive and uh, they won't be able to show some of these uh, smaller dramas that we've been talking about. You know, as far as the, the, the stuff on screen, it's really interesting to hear that last um, caller describe what she wants from uh, from a from a uh, from a TV show right now, because it, it's really uh, kind of this is the debate has been going on throughout the history of crises in our country, where we either really want to see our experience reflected on on the screen, or we really don't. One analog that comes to mind is the Vietnam War, where it really took a number of years uh, before a lot of movies tackled. Uh, the uh, the conflict in a way that I think was appealing uh, to uh, to consumers. He had a couple of movies in the later 70s, but most of the, the ones that really uh, took off were in the 80s, movies like Platoon and Full Metal Jacket. And I think it'll be interesting now with the news cycle being what it is, if we, if we want to wait 10 or 15 years uh, to digest a lot of this stuff, or if we're willing to see it uh, a lot sooner than that, I think there, there's a feeling that maybe uh, this is going to move very quickly and we're going to watch the pandemic play out almost in, in real time. Uh, but, you know, there are some listeners who just want to wait as long as possible. So that'll be really interesting to see as well. Let me go to caller Ben in Ventura. Hi, Ben. Hi. Thanks so much for having me. Um, I was calling to tell you about uh, what my friends and I were doing. We don't do it so much anymore because, um, you know, with things opening up and school starting again, things are kind of getting a bit busier. But um, earlier in the pandemic, we would have like a, a movie night, I guess we were we, you know, all watch a movie not not simultaneously, but like in in the day, um, and then at night we you know get on Zoom, have drinks and food sometimes, and you know talk about it, discuss it. We're all like big movie fans, and it was like, you know, we miss the theater, like going yeah. in, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> and then talking about it after is always it's always fun. You know, that's such an important point. Thanks for, for reminding us of that, too, is is partly what people like about, um, or at least people who the theaters would like to hear, is that people would like to come back right away and that they will that they will rebound quickly after all of this. But at the same time, just the communal part of it is lost, too. I mean, we can't really be in others' homes in any, any, especially different households in any major way right now as well. So anyway, Ben, thanks. Thanks for sharing that. Really appreciate it. Oh, yeah, of course. Thank you.
And again, if you want to join the conversation, 866-733-6786 is the number to call. You can also reach us on Twitter or Facebook at KQED Forum. Email questions or comments to forum at kqed.org. We're talking with Rebecca Rubin of Variety and Stephen Zychik of The Washington Post. And you're listening to Forum. I'm Mina Kim. You know, Rebecca Rubin, as I was thinking about my conversation with Corey Tong just a moment ago, and we were looking ahead at how films will be consumed more in the future, potentially. But do you think that there will be changes on the production side of this that are long-term as well, the pandemic has brought? Um, In terms of what's going to stick from production now? Yeah, exactly. Like maybe they figured out that they can do a lot more with a lot less people. (laughs) Yeah, I think a lot of businesses in general have learned that we can still be productive sometimes working from home and maybe not everybody needs to come to set. And so I think that in a way, what will continue on is a level of um, efficiency and productivity, because I think we're trying to right now figure out what is the best way to do this with the least amount of resources, because you don't want to have hundreds upon hundreds of hands on set. And so I think if we can figure out a way to maybe do this where it's um, most efficient for everyone, they're going to continue those kinds of protocols and procedures. Well, Tim writes, I'm struck by the different approaches the TV shows that usually rely on live studio audiences have taken. The Voice seems to have fully embraced the guidelines. SNL has a smaller audience wearing masks, but they still sit shoulder to shoulder. The masked singer is supposedly following the rules and spaces. The judges farther apart. But then go to great lengths to make you believe a live unmasked screaming audience is packed into the studio. Rebecca Rubin, I don't know if you have a reaction to how like live shows are handling all of this, but uh, but it is interesting to see the variety there. Yeah, we've seen a lot of different approaches for the Emmys this year. It was entirely virtual and um, they cut to people in their homes and the People's Choice Awards were last weekend. And so they had a few people actually in person, um, either accepting awards or presenting awards. And then they had um, telecast in audience members. And so that's been one way that they've had it where it's mostly virtual. But then like you mentioned, um, some shows have gone back to in-person sets and SNL is one of those examples. And I think it probably does create a very different dynamic when there's the room is a quarter of the way fill, filled compared to a very large audience, especially on a show like that, where you want to feed off the audience's interactions and hear them laughing. And so right. I think whether it's entirely virtual or just that reduced capacity, I think it does change the energy of whatever is being produced. Well, this listener writes, my husband and I are thoroughly enjoying streaming The West Wing. The topics are still so timely. And before that, we watched all our DVDs of Northern Exposure. (laughs) That was a delightful escape. There's a little nostalgia there. Colin tweets, I'm a Bay Area actor who worked on the pilot for the show Zoe's Extraordinary Playlist, which largely shoots in Canada. I would love for them to do more shooting here in the U.S., but COVID is much better controlled in Canada. Another example of control the virus, control the economy. Artists are hurting. You know, Stephen Zychik, are there parts of the industry that will have trouble surviving this pandemic? What are you most worried about? Yeah, I mean, it's, it's you know, like so much of the economy, we just don't know how long lasting these uh, effects are going to be. I mean, even as far as uh, the crew, uh, some of the crew uh, 
issues and and the fact that a lot of these productions i mean a lot of stuff has moved to vancouver although they, they actually had a, so much stuff moved to vancouver they had a bit of a testing backlog and, and had a had a shut down or slow down there but absolutely i mean you know cr- crews that work in production hubs in this country which includes uh southern california it includes uh new york uh georgia particularly as well uh you know with when when production is slowed down or uh stripped down then uh there's just going to be fewer jobs out there and so uh you know there are millions of people who uh, work on these shows and 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 feed their families without uh, us even knowing who they are. And if 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 stuff gets uh, pared down in any way, I think there's really going to be uh, a significant impact there and and a tragic one. Uh, I cover a little bit of Broadway and live theater as well, and uh, theater as well. And I think there's been a real uh, a real uh, uh, consequence to uh, these shows getting all pushed back by a year, and now even more, or getting shelved entirely. Uh, these are often people who work paycheck to paycheck, uh, not just actors, but stagehands and, and the whole supporting staff that puts on these live events. And I think without uh, without steady work, uh, they're either going to have to find other jobs or uh, just have to struggle like, like a lot of Americans are right now. So it is a really tragic element. As much as there is innovation going on, uh, we can't disguise the fact that a lot of people are hurting right now because there's just not enough work. Well, Stephen Zajcik, entertainment business writer for The Washington Post, really appreciate hearing your insights today. Thanks so much. Thank you for having me. And Rebecca Rubin, film and media reporter covering the box office, streaming services, and Hollywood studios for Variety. Really appreciate your reporting as well. Thank you for having me. And thanks to our listeners for their questions and comments. And thanks as well to Jameson Weiss for producing today's segment. I'm Mina Kim. This is Forum. Thank you for listening. Funds for the production of Forum are provided by the members of KQED Public Radio and the Germanicos Foundation and the Generosity Foundation. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. All over the country. We need to improve reading in Wisconsin. Schools are changing the way they teach reading. I'm calling for a renewed focus on literacy. We have gotten this wrong in New York and all across the nation. And it's happening because of a podcast. I think your podcast has changed my life. And I'm going to share this podcast with everyone I meet. Sold a Story investigates how teaching kids to read went wrong. New episodes of Sold a Story are available now.